podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Passage, a midsummer's night's dream. That was Ranji, a cricketer so skilled that he managed to play for England in the late 1800s despite being Indian. At the very same time, Crom Hendricks was forbidden to play for the English run South Africa. But of course, it didn't go that smoothly. When he missed that first test in 1896 that should have been his debut, the Times wrote, There was some feeling about Ranji's absence. But although the Indian prince has learnt all his cricket in England, he could scarcely, if the title of the match were to be adhered to, have been included in the English eleven. Journalist Home Gordon praised Ranji within earshot of an MCC member who wanted Gordon to lose his membership for having the disgusting degeneracy to praise a dirty black. Gordon also claimed to hear another MCC member complaining about an N-word showing us how to play the game of cricket. Obviously, in those days, they actually said the N-word. They didn't say N-word. While all this was going on, after a very promising start to his season, Ranji made a golden duck playing for Sussex against Cambridge. And even without him, England won that first test. Three weeks later in Old Trafford, a whole new selection committee sat down, and Ranji was picked for the second test. In those days, the local board made these selections, and the Lancashire selectors may have thought Ranji was good enough, or English enough, or would just guarantee better gate receipts. Ranji asked the Australians if they had any problem with him playing. They didn't, so he was in the team. Ranji made a decent but slow 62 in the first innings, but England had to follow on. In the second, Ranji really got going. Noting that he was batting with a team that couldn't handle their opposition, Ranji attacked. It took him only three hours to make 154, and he was the first to score 100 before lunch in a test match. He had scored more than half their runs and more than 100 to his nearest teammate. The Australians said it was one of the great innings, and it was only the second 100 on debut for an Englishman. The other one, W.G. Grace. It seems like he could actually show England how to play the game, all while actually playing for a team called England. Welcome to Double Century, a podcast on the history of cricket. I'm Jared Kimber. This is a season devoted to racing cricket and Basil D'Oliveira. But this week, we take a very quick look at the weird relationship that race and cricket have had over more than 100 years. When Ranji started as a batsman, he was afraid of the ball. But after a coaching intervention that you can hear about in season one, he became an incredible batsman who invented the leg glance. And in 1895, he was recruited to Sussex by Billy Murdoch and C.B. Fry. It was that year that he made his maiden first-class 100. By midsummer, big crowds turned up to the games he was in. The local authorities advertised him as much as they could. His body was maturing slowly, and he could now play even more shots, and his hard work paid off as he made 1,775 runs and an average of 49, an incredible mark for that point in cricket. It was clear that Ranji was in the best 11 players in England, but as it was cricket, nothing was ever that simple. As I said in the opening, the selection committee was for each individual home test. That meant that a lot of different random things could happen. The first test in 1896 was that test at Lord's, and Lord Harris was the selector, and he didn't select Ranji. 
Anthony Bateman writes in Cricket, Literature and Culture that the high-minded imperialist Lord Harris, who had just returned from a spell of colonial duty in India, opposed his qualification for England on the grounds of race. A proper reason could have been that Ranji wasn't born in England, but then again, neither was Harris, or many others, and that would have been a hard one to argue. Instead, Lord Harris referred to Ranji and players like him as birds of passage. Billy Murdoch was, of course, one of the players who brought Ranji to Sussex. Billy Murdoch, Albert Trott, JJ Ferris and Sammy Woods were all born in Australia, played test cricket for Australia, and then played cricket for England. Weirdly, none of them seemed as birdie in their passages as Ranji was. The conversation about who should play for England never really went away. Almost 100 years later, in the Wisden Cricket Monthly, they ran something that was called Is It in the Blood? And it was written about whether non-English players should be playing for England. It was essentially differentiating between the backgrounds of players. So Dermot Reeve, born in Hong Kong, is okay to play for England because he has an English background. Devon Malcolm, who moved to England at 15, shouldn't be in the team. And this is the article's nonsensical reasoning. What distinguishes him is his instinctive allegiance to a culture and the assumption in childhood of the manners and values of that culture. The successful ingestion of manners and values produces the social colouring necessary for any coherent society and allows a man's peers to accept him without question as one of themselves. I mean, if that sounds like just nonsense, it obviously is. I mean, the manners and values in Yorkshire are not a direct match for someone from London. Even within two London suburbs, they may not be the same. But this article makes it even more clear. The inclusion of South Africans, West Indians, and an Indian in recent 11s offends my sense of rightness or proportion, just as a badly drawn picture or a self-conscious acting performance does. If it feels like this was written on a blog that would be about anti-vaxxing or flat-earth conspiracy or QAnon, then yes, it is that kind of nonsense. Anyway, Devin Malcolm and Phil DeFreda sued the Wisden Cricket Monthly. It was edited by legendary cricket writer David Frith and they got an out-of-court settlement. And this issue never really goes away. Remember what happens around the world when England have the audacity to pick players who weren't always born in their country. It doesn't seem to matter if they have parents who are English, or if they have moved at a young age, it is always brought up in a way that it kind of isn't also for other countries. It seems like it's all right for Manus Labuschagne to play for Australia in a way that it's not for Joffre Archer, even if Joffre Archer's father was, you know, a tube driver. I think the fact that over 100 years later this is still being brought up points out just what a remarkable batsman Ranji must have been to play 15 tests for England. Also, all of his 15 tests were against Australia, but I assume that is more to do with the fact that England sent B teams to play South Africa than anything political. Not everyone was as lucky as Ranji though. In Australia, just a few years after Ranji's debut, Jack Marsh was, according to Palin Warner, the best bowler in the world in 1903. He was also allegedly the Australian record holder over a 100-yard dash and perhaps even the world record holder at that time. He was a natural athlete that was persuaded to play cricket. Whether Marsh was the best bowler is debatable, but he was by many accounts probably the fastest. Being fast and indigenous was always going to be a bad mix in those days. Cricket may not have had the same class problem in Australia that it did in many other countries, but it would have been an embarrassment to be hit or bowled by a black fella. Marsh was also unlucky enough to be playing right in the middle of one of Cricket's many chucking scandals. Even Warner thought that he was a shire. Marsh was first called for chucking in Sydney grade cricket. To prove it was a false claim, he asked a hospital to put splints on his arm and gave a medical certificate saying it couldn't be straightened. 
He then went out and bowled. Marsh took six for 125 from 33 overs, bowling as fast as ever. But Marsh never played a test and only played six first-class games. He took 34 wickets in them. But umpire Bob Crockett called him 17 times in one game. The crowd cheered Marsh and booed Crockett. Croc, croc, croc. And when Marsh bowled legendary Australian player Warwick Armstrong, the crowd cheered, despite the fact that Marsh was from New South Wales and this game was in MCG Armstrong Stronghold. At one point, Marsh lost it and just started coming in and throwing on purpose. Croc, croc, croc. Warren Bardsley was an Australian captain who thought Marsh was a star as good as Sid Barnes. They both bowled leg spin, off spin and quick. Bardsley wrote that Marsh was kept out of big cricket because of his colour. Marsh eventually left the sport that never really wanted him. He became a freak show bowler with a problem of getting into fights and drinking too much. He would be killed outside of a pub. The two men who were charged would be acquitted. No one else was ever charged. And it wasn't just Marsh. Almost 30 years later, another Indigenous Australian bowler would have a similar fate. Eddie Gilbert was fast. Like Marsh, many said that Gilbert was the quickest of his time. He never played a test either. He only played 23 first-class matches over six years, and that's because, again, of the colour of his skin. But while we're talking about these two Indigenous fast bowlers, it's also worth talking about how weird cricket is when it comes to race. The first Australian team to tour England in 1868 was almost entirely Indigenous. Tom Wills was the first man to be called for chucking in Australian first-class cricket, and he also invented the sport Australian Rules Football. Australian Rules Football is a weird combination of rugby and Gaelic football, but also an Indigenous game called Marne Grook. Wills wanted to take a team of Indigenous players over to England, but he never quite made it that far. But his idea was taken up by Charles Lawrence, who actually did take an Australian native 11 to England. Lawrence was English, and had been one of the first to tour Australia back in 1861-62. Like Wills, he was a fine cricketer himself. He had a bowling average of 10.94, which even for that era, I mean, it's 10.94. You get the idea. When the team arrived in England, they were met with headlines of, Arrival of the Black Cricketers. The players had nicknames, or partially anglicised names, and then often those of their people. The most notable is Dick-a-Dick, Jun-Gun, Jinook. But the most stunning is Jim Crow, Jella Chimurin. At that time, Jim Crow was a racial slur for black Americans from the South. The best player was Johnny Mullah Unaramin, a proper all-rounder. And he made 1,698 runs at 23, and he took 245 wickets at 10 on that tour. Unaramin was a real player, and he helped carry the team along with Lawrence through most of their matches. Unaramin only ever played one match for Victoria, but the story has always been that that's because he didn't want to live in Melbourne. People in England didn't just come to watch his team play cricket. They also wanted to see the entire Indigenous experience. And during the breaks and after play, they received a lesson in Indigenous ways. Unaramin smacked a crowd member in the face with a boomerang in Liverpool. Jungun Jen Anuk was the first true star of these pursuits. To entertain and probably to collect a lot more coin, he would challenge people to piff balls at him and he would deflect them with a boomerang and shield from 10 paces. You'll be rewarded if you hit him, which according to legend, happened only once on the entire tour. But not oddly the time seven men threw at him in unison. At Lord's, to be a showman, he had 10 top hats thrown at him. The players also threw spears, but they were beaten by WG Grace in a cricket ball throwing contest. Sadly, King Cole Brip Um Yarraman died on the tour of tuberculosis and pneumonia, aged an estimated 30. The team played in 47 matches throughout England during the six months they were there. 
Their record was 14 wins, 14 losses and 19 draws. Let's be honest, Australia have had worse to it. Unaro Min was seen as a genuine star, and with one English player saying he had never bowled to anyone better. And with 14 wins, you would assume that the Indigenous cricket would grow and grow. As Marsh and Gilbert have proved, that didn't happen. This tour was either ignored or just downplayed for years. It was largely due to the name and mouth of Ian Chappell, the writing of former Australian off-spinner Ashley Mallett, and the book Cricket Walkerback by John Mulvaney and Rex Harcourt that these men eventually got their due. They deserve some recognition, so over 130 years after their tour, the members of the Australian Native Eleven, as they were then known, were inducted into the Australian Cricket's Hall of Fame and given test numbers, kind of alternate test numbers, despite the fact that they never played in any tests. What they did was pave a way for Australian cricketers to go to the UK, and for that they deserve every single honour that they got. It was over half a century later when Eddie Gilbert was playing first-class cricket in Australia in 1931. His skin colour and his ethnicity were still an issue. To even leave where he lived, he had to get permission. But Queensland were playing Don Bradman, and they were still a developing cricket state, so they picked their quickest bowler, despite his skin colour. When Gilbert took a wicket first ball, the crowd cheered with delight. Not for the wicket, but because Bradman would be coming in next. Bradman was carried to the wicket by the applause of the opposition supporters. There might still have been great interstate rivalry at the time, but Bradman was everyone's. The first ball Gilbert bowled, Bradman handled. The second one was down the leg side and did nothing. The third one beat him for pace. And the fourth one hit Bradman and knocked the bat out of his hand. The fifth, Bradman tried to hook, this time edging behind. Gilbert had knocked him over, knocked the bat out of his hand and taken him for a duck. According to Bradman, it was the five quickest balls that he ever faced. These balls would later be part of the inspiration for Bodyline. Gilbert was good enough to sit a national hero, an icon, a legend, on his ass and take his wicket, but he wasn't good enough to overcome his own skin colour. Like Jack Marsh and many other before him, he was suspected of chucking. In Victoria, he was called 13 times. Bradman also wrote that he thought Gilbert was a chucker. There's no doubt that Gilbert had a weird bowling action. He had a very small run-up, and there aren't many five foot seven fast bowlers with proper actions. To get that pace from what was a tiny body, you have to use everything you've got. Gilbert's action was probably similar to that of either Jeff Thompson or West Indian Fidel Edwards. It was a catapult fling at the crease. Alan McGilvery, the voice of Australian cricket, said that it was hard to even tell he was chucking. His arm was moving so quickly. Even when he wasn't being called a chucker, Gilbert found it very tough to play shield matches. Much of the time he was injured, as players of his size are probably just not made to bowl as quick as he did. And those running his settlement would take most of his playing wage, which meant that it was hard for him to afford equipment or travel. Not to mention that he had to get permission to leave the settlement in the first place. After 23 matches, 87 wickets, an average of 28, and he was striking every 56 balls, Gilbert was left back on his settlement. Mentally, he started to deteriorate, and in 1950, he ended up in what we would call now mental health facilities, but what they called at that time an insane asylum. They tried shock treatment to fix him but it turns out that he had Alzheimer's, so it was just useless torture. The thought of that amazing bowler being strapped down and unable to free those incredible limbs of his is horrifying. Gilbert spent his next 28 years in that hospital. At nights, he would often be seen wandering around the cricket ground next to the asylum. That ground is now the Eddie Gilbert Memorial Oval. In modern times, Cricket Australia has tried to honour Gilbert, 
The ground is just one of the ways. But they shunned the human catapult and essentially left him for dead. Gilbert once said, It's all right to be a hero on the field, but a black man can be lonely when he is not accepted after the game. But five years before Gilbert destroyed Bradman, the Imperial Cricket Conference, which is obviously now a different kind of ICC, decided to allow the West Indies, New Zealand and India into test matches. So you see, again, you have Gilbert not being picked because of the colour of his skin and then being called a chucker to discredit him. And at the same time, the West Indies and India are playing test cricket. Of course, the issue of race was still very much involved in India and the West Indies. For instance, India very nearly made Douglas Jardine their first captain as he was born in Mumbai. But of course, the West Indies was captained by white men until 1948 when George Headley became captain for a test was injured, and then didn't captain in his last two games. Now, there is a lot to unpack with the white captains of the West Indies. If you're like me, the first time you heard West Indies have white captains, you probably assumed that they were terrible versions of Mike Brearley, bossing island players around with a thick British accent, perhaps a cravat. And obviously, the basic idea that you had to be white to captain a cricket team is next-level idiot. But by any measure, many of the white West Indian captains were phenomenal cricketers in their own right. Dennis Atkinson made a test double century. Jeff Stollemeyer averaged 42 with a bat. And Jerry Alexander averaged a very respectable 30 while being a wicketkeeper. It's just that you can't overlook the fact that the West Indies also had incredible black cricketers at that point. Leary Constantine, as you can hear in Season 1, was surely a player worthy of leading the West Indies. I mean, leading pretty much anyone. And I did mention George Headley before, so let's quickly talk about him. Before World War II, Headley averaged 66. He probably shouldn't have played after the war and it did nosedive his average a little bit. But 66, what an incredible batsman he was. And it wasn't just the amount of runs with Headley. He had this very interesting thought process behind his batting. Two of the things that he did were remarkable. He would try and hit the ball where the bowlers were fielding all the game, all the way through, just so he could tire them out. And when a spinner came on, he'd run down the wicket and smack the ball as hard as he could straight back at the spinner, hoping to damage their fingers. Now, having the ability to pull that off is, well, it shows why he averaged 66 before the war. But the thought process to think that way suggests an incredible cricket brain. And they didn't let that cricket brain captain until he was over the hill. And then for only one test. And there were inconsistencies like this in cricket everywhere. West Indies toured Australia in 1960-61. That team was so popular that during the series, they renamed the trophy after the first black captain of the West Indies, Frank Worrell. He was mid-career and mid-series, and they changed it to the Frank Worrell Trophy. But at that very same time, in Australia, they had what we now refer to as the White Australia Policy, which meant that people of non-European ethnic origin couldn't immigrate to the country. And what a what lovely smile on his face as he gets up there to commence the proceedings whereby the Frank Worrell Trophy, and there's Frank, will be presented by the Australian Board of Control in memory of a wonderful test series to Frank Worrell. And on his right, Richie Benno, the captain of the Australian team. Whistle, sadly on a recording that my dad has now lost, once claimed to have chatted to then Australian Prime Minister Robert Menzies. Hall said that he was essentially a drinker, a smoker, a gambler, you know, maybe not the best person in the world. But his brother was the complete opposite, was a man of God, committed to his wife and an all-round good egg. Those are my words, but that was the essential nature of what Hall was saying. And Hall pointed out to Menzies, though, that he could come to Australia just because he played cricket, and his brother, the clearly better man, could not. 
But even within that society, after that 60-61 series, reportedly 200,000 Melbournians, if that's true, it's roughly 10% of Melbourne, were out on the street cheering the 60-61 West Indians in a parade. Yeah, it really was that weird. As Sir Donald Bradman, Frank, ladies and gentlemen, Frank was kind enough to say that he was offering me a scalp and his neck and the upper half of his body, but I'm quite certain that you will all agree with me that he himself will remain in the hearts of cricket lovers in this country for many a long day. Even if the Black West Indians hadn't always been captains, and they're obviously still logical fallacies, as Hall had pointed out, but cricket had non-white people playing it around the world before the modern Olympics, and then right up until World War II. And here it's worth talking about US sports, as they dominate so much of the chat about race in sport. Jackie Robinson was a second lieutenant in the US Army. In college, he excelled at many sports, and before the US got involved in World War II, he was playing a low level of professional football. But in 1947, he became the first athlete to be accepted properly into major US sport. Now, by 1947, Leary Constantine had played as professional for 17 years in cricket. The West Indies had been a test team that entire time. India had started in 1932. And there was Charles Llewellyn. And there was Ranji. And Ranji's nephew, Dilip, who also played cricket for England. Cricket was so far ahead of US sports when it came to racial politics by the 1940s that the Jackie Robinson story would have felt almost cute to cricket fans. But that's not exactly how things work, is it? Because for all the good that cricket had done, there was one giant Aryan albatross in the room. South Africa had played 172 test matches, 102 with England, 53 against Australia, 17 against New Zealand, 0 against the West Indies, 0 against Pakistan, 0 against India. And maybe I'm wrong in this, but no one seemed to care or no one seemed to bother, or certainly major people in the game did not speak up enough. South Africa weren't just racist in their team selection, which is terrible, but also in who they played. And cricket just let them be. Imagine the New York Yankees saying that they wouldn't allow fixtures to even be set up against the Brooklyn Dodgers because of Robertson. But this was so unspoken that it never even got to that level. And it's worth again talking about how old all this was, because I tell you what, South Africa did play against a player with dark skin. Julep, when he played for England, his first test, in fact, was against South Africa. And just to continue on the weird theme, we talked about Marsh and Gilbert not being allowed to play for Australia because they were Indigenous. But you probably haven't heard of Samuel Morris, who played one test for Australia when the rest of the team went on strike during the 1884-85 series. He was a medium pacer who could bat a bit. He was born in Tasmania to a Bayesian father who had immigrated during the gold rush. So even Australia had a black player while they were going out of their ways to make it so difficult for other black players. South Africa had Charles Llewellyn, who, as I said before, was partially black, even if he didn't completely look like it. And South Africa would play against Julep. The West Indies were allowed to play, but with a white captain. And of course, I'm talking about very old things. I'm talking about what cricket used to be like. It would be absurd for a sport that can't sort out its own fixture list to somehow work out racial issues in what is one of the most international sports of all time. And this is not just a white or black issue as well. There have been tensions within West Indian cricketers for many years between those of Afro-Caribbean backgrounds and Asian origin. This was Sanal Gavaskar's book on the Jamaican crowd. All I got was laughter from that section, which certainly hadn't graduated from the trees where they belonged. 
Andrew Simons in India received monkey chance. Dean Jones was caught on commentary talking about the terrorists had got another wicket after that Hashim Amla catch. And Darren Sammy's nickname in the IPL recently. Look, I could list a million of these from then and now. But let me just add one more. Alice Achong. He was a West Indian of Chinese ancestry and was a bowler from Trinidad who played a few games for the West Indies. He only took eight wickets in his six tests, but he took 110 at 38 in his first class career. But he's famous for when he bowled to England and Walter Robbins was facing him. Chong ripped a ball back through the gates and bowled him. And Robbins is supposed to have said, huh, fancy being done by a bloody Chinaman. Leary Constantine, fielding nearby, replied, is that the man or the ball? And that's the story that Chong would tell himself for years. And it's really the story that we have told about the origin of the term Chinaman. But the term Chinaman for left-arm wrist spinners actually happened before Achong bowled to Reed. It was around in Yorkshire at least five to ten years earlier. After Achong, it certainly became more popular, perhaps because it had that story to hang on. Despite, though, the obvious weird racial tones of that. And you might think, well, people back then, they were more racist, so no one probably mentioned it to them. Well, the Yorkshire Post wrote in 1934, the Chinese regard the word Chinaman as derogatory, and it should, therefore, be avoided. It was probably used at the same time when Hunter Poon played for Queensland in the 1920s. It continued through when Herbert Chang was representing the West Indies, later when Richard Chiqui was playing for New South Wales, and of course it was still being used quite happily by everyone when Mark Chapman was playing for Hong Kong in a World Cup 80 years later. I do understand the appeal. Left arm wrist spinner is not a poetic term, but it's also not a term that Chinese people think is derogatory. Thank you for listening to Double Century, the podcast on the history of cricket. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Also, any way that you can share it really helps us. We are an independent production. And if you want to help support us more, we have a Patreon in the show notes. And a huge thank you to those who already donate to us. Double Century is a team effort. Nick McCorriston is our producer and editor. Abhishek Mukherjee and Bertie Moores are our fact checkers. And the series is written and narrated by me. Jared Kimber. Thank you for listening. If you are listening to this podcast, you may also enjoy my other show, Red Inca. It's a podcast about stories and issues in cricket, told by the experts who have followed it or the people who've lived them. We've had Dan Norcross talking about cricket commentary, Wright Thompson on his Sachin Tendulkar piece, and a bunch of cricketers like Andrew Balburnie, Tamal Mill, Sean Massoud, and Alex Hartley. It's a weekly podcast with a different theme for every show. Sports Social Podcast Network.